calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. And I'm Sarah Century. And today we have an interview with the incredible, the amazing, the one and only Ben Kahn. Hi there, I'm Ben Kahn. I've written a bunch of comics with Bruno Hidalgo, like Shaman, Heavenly Blues, and Griffin Galaxy's Most Wanted. A bunch of weird and wacky comics where I try to throw as much crazy stuff and jokes as I can as humanly possible into a page. Yes, it shows. It is so fun. It is so funny, too. <laughs> just beautiful. I'm very excited. I'm just so excited. That's what uh, I get so, for starting out in 2000s, like, four-panel webcomic strips oh and then God. going from there. Yes, that was the time, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> those, ha- those halcyon days of the 2000s, which, with every passing day, I realized, wow, nothing from this era has aged well. I kind of wanted to talk, obviously, about the process because we have tons of people, I think, who make comics on their own and things like that. And, you know, I I just think that we talk to a lot of people that are at varying levels of creating their own work and trying to put their own work out there. So because you do it so successfully, I would like to know kind of what your start of getting these comics made was. So in terms of like my first starting with comics, as a teenager, I did this like silly little four panel strips where like I would take video game sprites and put it together in Microsoft Paint at first. <laughs> and that was at least something like to start out just kind of learning um, dialogue and learning kind of the early stages of just working with the medium. I was kind of lucky kind of in the early 2010s, Philadelphia, where I was living at the time kind of had this uh, really cool, vibrant uh, comic scene kind of spring up that was a really exciting place to be for like those few years where it was really going on and going strong. And there were a lot of great people there that really uh, were able to like help me figure out and learn how to put the comic together and really help me figure out that process. And it was through them uh, you know, and the editors. In my first book I did, Andrew, Carl, and Chris Stevens, they connected me with Bruno Hidalgo and then pretty much once me and Bruno were hooked up, it was just off to the races with me and him, like just from one book to the next to the next. Yeah, it seems like it, right? 
there's been, I mean, even just the schedule that you've maintained for Griffin, I think they've come out pretty regularly. Yeah, we've been trying to keep it, we've definitely tried to keep a pretty consistent release schedule for that. The fact that we do release it in kind of 11 to 12 pages installments rather than 20 to 24 pages definitely helps get it out there a little faster. And mm-hmm. and it's been kind of interesting how that modified release, the benefits and how that's changed kind of the writing process, how that's changed the pacing for the series. But I think just the fact that we were able to play with that installment length is a really cool facet to digital comics and not something we would have been able to do if it had been traditional monthly floppy book. Right, unless it was, I mean, because to me, Griffin has kind of the feel of a 2080 story or something where you could see it happening alongside three other stories that are kind of bonkers, fun sci-fi stuff. So it kind of strikes me as that. And then I'm just like, is it really just basically because of the length of the stories? <laughs> like, also, how much fun would that be to have like two oh other so like bonkers like stories in that universe, yeah. like, in that length? Like, oh, I would love that. Yeah, that would be brilliant. And 2000 AD does it to varying degrees of greatness. They've also been doing it just for so, so, so long. So um, mm-hmm. this is like cheesy, but I think the listeners will love this. Sarah and I have such an incredible partnership. It's easy. We meet every once in a while, divide up work, and then never check in. It just gets done. You know, we don't even talk about it. We're like, I do send cat pics. I send yes, many cat pics of picks. my cat. Cat pics and are I an send, important part of any creative mm-hmm. process. <laughs> I send a lot of pictures of different panels I'm reading from comics that Sarah read like 20 years ago. And I'm like, Sarah, what is happening? And she's like, well, actually, Storm went through a phase where she didn't like to wear very much clothing. And I'm like, nothing but respect. Nothing but respect. Um, do but you, Storm. You, Hell yeah. Exactly. So I'm, I'm not here to judge. You're gorgeous. Do whatever feels Aurora right. Aurora Monroe can do whatever she damn well pleases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Th- that is our other podcast. <laughs> Aurora, Aurora Monroe, Monroe can do whatever, whatever she damn she well pleases. pleases. Yeah. So I want to hear about your partnership with, with Bruno a little bit more. I mean, you said you got hooked up through editors, but like, what is it like? What's your creative process because- like? Yeah, I just want to say that the art matches just so perfectly. I just it's think that, remarkable. Yeah, just brilliant. It's, it's so it has been interesting because we've been working together so long. We've never met in person. He because I'm in New York and he lives in Barcelona. Oh wow! So when we first started out, like it was a lot of work was put into just navigating the uh, the language barrier, which I think definitely kind of influenced my early uh, comic script writing just in the Mm -hmm. sense that like the descriptions really couldn't be flowery or elaborate like it really demanded that I kind of approach the comic book scripts as like I need to be clear and direct about what goes on the page (laughs) right not a Chris Claremont script (laughs) yeah like this needs to be something that someone can understand who's not a native speaker so that was something that uh, you know, I still kind of look at scripts and just on my go-to is just be like, just be very clear and direct. And even if the panel description just feels like chunky and weirdly worded, it, so, so long as it's like as clear as possible is the focus. Right. And that was kind of a result of navigating the language barrier. As we worked together, really when we went from Shaman to Heavenly Blues was definitely a turning point in that the language barrier became much less of an issue and we were able to have a lot more communication, usually still um, in writing, just because that was still 
writing became easier to navigate than um, talking, especially because I apparently, I have a weird voice, as I've been told by everyone I've ever met. <laughs> what? Oh, so come ev- on. <laughs> everyone That's a I weird know thing who, to say to someone. <laughs> everyone I know, almost everyone I know who English is like, like wasn't their native language has told me like, oh, I knew I was like mastered English when I could understand what the hell you were saying. <laughs> What a weird compliment. Harsh. <laughs> um, I, I feel like it's both harsh and a compliment. Yeah, it, it's like harsh. I don't have any hang-ups about my and voice and deep-seated insecurities. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what? It's okay, though, Ben, because I was listening to one of our episodes, and it sounded like Sarah and I were in a competition to see who could say the most words per minute. It was <laughs> like it doesn't happen all the time. We are definitely both fast talkers and we get so excited. <laughs> but whenever I'm with people who speak English as a second language, especially I was in the Netherlands for a, a study abroad opportunity and they were like, "Bitch, I don't know what the fuck you're saying. <laughs> could you please slow down?" I always was like, Shit! I didn't even know I was talking fast. But yeah, no. So me and Bruno, especially from Heavenly Blues on, we're able to communicate a lot more and go into more detail on things and kind of talk influences and how we kind of envisioned things. Griffin is our third book we've done together. It's at the point where it's very easy for me to visualize stories in his art style now and really try to write for his strengths. And I think. As we've worked together, we've just gotten better. Like, I feel like I've gotten better at writing to his art, and he's gotten better at drawing to my writing. And at this point now, it's at the point where I know I can give him almost anything, and he's just going to absolutely crush it. Yeah, because, I mean, I think even the characters, when they're talking in Griffin, have a very direct way of speaking. So maybe it like kind of goes over to that as well. But I just think every time I read it, what a good partnership yeah, I completely agree. I think it feels seamless. Like It's hard to imagine the story of Griffin in a different form of art. I also, you know, we got a chance to read one of your scripts, and I was going to say, like, it wasn't without art, though. You know, it's not like you were wholly unable to do your thing as you go through it, so to speak. Like, it's really interesting to see the way you describe different panels or how sometimes you paste, like, even images you found on the internet and so there's like a suggestion of what the artist can look at what what a doggo can look at and I'm just curious like where did you learn to script and what do you think are some of the keys to to scripting so and I like that you mentioned the images because to me that's just one of the best tools you can have especially as like a comic writer you're really writing this for an audience of one which is the artist Uh, that's really the only person that needs to really understand reference why not include reference images I've never worked with somebody who didn't like having reference images whether it's comics or my day job I've worked with back and forth art notes a lot and if you can show something rather than telling that always 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 works better and sends a clearer message. So comic writers, don't feel like you can't use reference images. They're great. If you're struggling to describe something or a pose, just send a reference image. Yeah, like it seems so obvious when you say it like that, but like it was really revelatory reading the script and then, you know, I got to see the inks later and see like how it got laid out and you got exactly what you wanted, right? Because you were able to communicate so clearly and words are metaphors, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is all metaphor. So it's very difficult to communicate anything <laughs> accurately. And it's always like a suggestion. It's never... My attitude towards these kinds of things is always like, if you have a way of thinking about it, of visualizing it, that you think is just way cooler, go with your vision. 
but if you're struggling to just figure out like how to like do it, like here's the way I was thinking it could be done. Always want to make sure just giving the artist options and freedom to do what they how they want to do it still because it's it has to be a partnership. I was going to say it echoes a lot of the advice I'm seeing people share on Twitter right now about comic writing and how if, you know, two different ones I'm thinking of. One was like, oh, my God, please always send someone because it was someone had drawn out Knives Out. They were sharing Brian Johnson's Knives Out sketches and they're like hilarious, right? Because they're like stick figures and like the knives are all just like weird triangles. And you're like, what the hell is well, happening? How else do you draw knives? Right. I still haven't figured it out. Okay, your weird triangles looks... Or, well, I don't know what your weird triangles look like, but Bruno's look amazing. They do not yes. look weird triangles, okay? So, and that's why Bruno draws the weird triangles and I stay exactly. far away from the weird triangles. <laughs> that makes sense. And I saw a comic artist retweet that and was like, listen, this is great. You should always send your artist something because it shows them like what you're, what you're trying to picture. And, and it's then, easy now. Yeah, and then the other advice I saw was actually from someone who was a comic writer who was established and was saying, listen, whatever script you just wrote for your comic, I want you to go and draw it out panel by panel and write out the words in every comment bubble and write out the description, the narrative boxes, like go write it out and then go edit your script and come show me what you got. <laughs> I was yeah. like, that's really, that's, that's smart. That's, that's really, really good advice. Think about it. So when I was first kind of like, Really trying to teach myself comic writing. I was in college, but comic book writing isn't really a class that gets taught. <laughs> Can't really add like Jane Austen and Stan Lee on the same uh, class <laughs> schedule. So what I was doing, I was just working on scripts with a kind of sense of, like, I'm not sure this is something I can make, but like, I need to just write out like a full issue one. Like I need to just figure out how the medium works. I need to figure out how to pace it, how a page actually works and like how panels in pages works. So what I would do was like with every page, you know, I would try to like have a panel breakdown and basic angles, you know, with what I can do with like my little stick figures. You know, it's not something um, I still do, but early on in starting out, it was a re like doing my own little mini panel breakdowns was a really useful way in figuring out how to learn how to navigate the page. What do you think that working on Griffin specifically has taught you? Because, you know, you are getting, you're going along, you're becoming a veteran pretty much at this point. What do you think that this series brought to you? So Griffin was a really interesting, it kind of felt like to go into almost like wistful English major short story mode. <laughs> it did feel like a bit of a personal uh, creative full circle because it definitely felt like kind of uh, bringing the old with the new. Because with the character of uh, Lila Griffin, I kind of reached back to my old webcomic days and kind of the defining character type of this, of the old webcomic was because it was a comic I started when I was 15 and it was 2005 and Chappelle Show <laughs> and South Park were required viewing at the time. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, everything aged great from that era. Oh, yeah. Still, I mean, every day we love to have conversations about how great South Park has been for the culture. <laughs> totally. Uh, but kind of the defined character was this protagonist uh, psychopath. Complete punk, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, these characters where it was like pixelated sprite, so like there was this sense of like just, you know, when no one really had faces, just so removed from realism that you'd have characters, you know, just wantonly murdering pedestrians and just being corrupt and, 
you know, random drug humor from a 15-year-old who's never had a sip of beer, <laughs> who totally knows how drugs work. Yeah, fucking way to go, dare. Um, and I think some of the people was just like, you know, these characters just being these witty psychopaths doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and paying little consequences, except in just these weird, bizarre, like, situations they find themselves thrown into. <laughs> but it was very much the sense of these characters resorting to just, like, wanton comedic violence, but very much from this teenage 2000s place of <laughs> immature nihilism. This is like, oh, I don't care about anything. Like, there are no sacred cows, make fun of everything, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So with Griffin, it was kind of like, what if we went back to that kind of like that character type of where it was like, who just had that much energy, that much forward momentum, whose pure base wants were strong enough to just drive every other character and plot event forward where there didn't need to be an inciting incident because the character just was a walking inciting incident. But, you know, and especially in the wake of certain traumatic events that might have happened to the body politic around circa 2016 or so. <laughs> oh, oh, what? No, mm. um, hmm, I guess I'll have to look on the internet. Yeah, very obscure event. Um, <laughs> it was kind of like, what if we took that old, like, kind of protagonist psychopath, but instead of caring about nothing, apply those traits to a character that cares about everything? Yeah. Like, kind of take that almost absent of politics and then apply it to politics in the extreme like take that yeah. same sense of satisfying unleashed cathartic id but now point it in very specific ideological directions because every day i did want to have these characters be extremists very much driven by a clear ideology even if it's an ideology they find themselves questioning and has contradictions it's I really just wanted to have Griffin's very just clear, unshakable mission, even if it is a mission of destruction, be what drives the plot. You know, part of what kind of inspires everything I do is what will I have fun doing? Like, what are playgrounds I haven't played? And like, what genres and tones and settings and just character devices and storytelling tropes do I want to just mix and match and have fun with and play with? And Griffin is very much my... Well, if I never get to do, like, Star Trek, this is my Star Trek. This is my <laughs> insane, genderqueer, anti-fascist, like, anti-human Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and it's so good. Yeah. It's and it, so good. What I think was so clever, I mean, there's, we could talk 45 minutes about that. So many clever different pieces. But I felt like Griffin was such a real character, like, someone who had a really clear code, but also a really clear thing that they wanted, a really clear way of looking at the world and what matters and what doesn't, but then also troubling those notions over the course of the plot of the, of the 12 issues. And I think that that makes for such an interesting read because you don't have to like them to understand them. And you don't have to agree with them to understand them. But Damn, if you're not going to be like, well, fuck, those are some good points, though. You know, even if I maybe I disagree with some of it, like, those are very good points. <laughs> ah, you're making me blush because that is pretty much exactly the reaction I was hoping, like, people would have to, like, Griffin and their actions. We haven't talked about uh, basically anything queer-related. Right? Um, that's so got to be, be a record for us to go this long without talking about anything queer. Seriously. But haven't we? by all of us. Yeah, I mean, but all right. Okay, let's we? be real. Let's be real. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so I guess, like, I mean, one thing I guess that's important to talk about just is, you know, how do you think that queerness influences your work? Obviously, having read your work, I think I can maybe attest to that in some ways. I mean, I think queerness, especially as I've become more aware of my queerness, has played a big role. You know, the book that uh, will be announced next month, you know, writing that actually did play a pretty big role in me figuring out and coming out as non-binary. So it's even just like writing queer stuff in comics has influenced my queerness in life. Yeah. Um, but I think especially coming out as non-binary, uh, which kind of happened between Heavenly Blues and Griffin, I definitely think that was kind of a turning point, and you can kind of see it. Not that there isn't queer elements in Heavenly Blues, especially, you know, everything with, uh, you know, the queer cowboy character, Coin Counter Turner. I think queerness is definitely a more fundamental thing. In Griffin, I think it's much more baked into the book's DNA, especially with Griffin being non-binary. So much of the focus on the book being in their past relationships with both men and women. And I think, you know, even the main villain being queer, I think, especially in a book with so much is about fascism and repression, having a book like this, I feel like there's always this certain punk rebelliousness to queerness. And I really felt it was important to have that be not subtextual, but very textual. And it was very important to me that Griffin, as a non-binary person, still be very human. I really wanted to stay away from what I call uh, techno-babble non-binary, mm-hmm. which is you know always um, where the character is non-binary because of some science right. fiction or magical reason. Where it's like, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm non-binary because as an elemental plant spirit, plants don't understand <laughs> your concept of male and female. And it's like... <laughs> Great. Um, I don't want to say it's dehumanizing, but that is clearly what I'm saying. And like the yeah, I don't understand literally. is the problem, right? It's yeah. like, oh, wow, I could never conceive of binary gender. Exactly. <laughs> like, I can't even conceive of how you perceive gender unless you're a non-human thing. You know, and there's definitely good examples of non-binary representation that are still are science fiction or fantasy. Like, I think one of the characters that doesn't fall into that is Danny the Street in Doom Patrol. Oh, totally. Hell yeah. yes. Hell yeah, you yes. just opened Hell up yes. the Danny the Street fan base because that's <laughs> yeah. who and, we are. And what makes it is that they're not non-binary because, oh, sentient geography doesn't have gender. But right, because right, right. this is the gender identity they are most comfortable like identifying as. And mm-hmm. that makes all the difference in the world. But even still with Griffin as the main character in a science fiction setting, I just wanted them to be a regular non-binary human being like exists now and like has always existed throughout human history. And I just right. wanted to show them being non-binary, using they, them pronouns, still being like a sexual human being. So that was all important to me to just making Griffin not just a character who's non-binary, but really making them everything a normal main protagonist would get to be. It made me think when you were saying that about, you know, Steven Universe has had this non-binary character since season one of... Stevani, but in this in Steven Universe future, they actually created a human character who's non-binary, Shep, voiced by a non-binary actor, India Moore. And I was writing about that for some list, you know how you do. And I remember just thinking, like, that's such a different form of representation. It like, really is. And I love Stevani, but Shep is just much more real representation. 
Absolutely. And it's like the problem that I always like get into this with people about Janet on The Good Place is I'm like, I don't need to be perfect. <laughs> like, I'm right. non-binary. That doesn't make me perfect. And also like, this is what really gets me with Janet is like her lover is misgendering her. Yeah. All on a regular time, yeah. basis. It's an important plot point that it's he like, misgenders and, her. And then like his cool thing is he calls her not a girlfriend. And I'm like... That's, like, the best we can hope for yeah. is, like, you could just sort of misgender us. <laughs> like, what the hell? I hate it. Right. I hate it. You a, know? A, a wonderful right. character who I love, but, <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about Griffin a lot today, but I think that's what I really love about Griffin is Griffin is not expected to be perfect or somehow, you know, people confuse non-binary with androgynous people who confuse non-binary with a skinny person with short hair and white you know people make all these assumptions about what non-binary means and griffin is some of those things and not other of those things and is a person and they're really understandable in their personness you know and i love the way that misgendering is handled in the comic it's like so perfect because at first telica keeps misgendering griffin and dao is like does it right every time. And then I don't think they ever have a conversation. I think Telika just starts gendering but them like, correctly. It definitely, like, I was definitely, every instance of misgendering in the comic was something I really did put a lot of thought into because I do know it's a painful thing, but it's also a very real part of the non-binary experience um, I've found. And... Also, just for what the Reach are, uh, you know, their evil fascist empire, nothing about them <laughs> makes it seem like they would be cool with gender nonconformity. So I try to just be mindful of, like, what the world I set up, even if it makes it a crueler, harsher world, um, because they are. They're freaking evil space Nazis. They suck in every way. But also, even, and I love that you picked that up with Telika, because that did become my way of showing some like early evolution in Telika and Griffin's relationship and kind of show because most of that when Telika's using she, uh, her for Griffin and misgendering them, uh, that's when they're really uh, really more Griffin's hostage than anything else. They are the result of like a plan that's gone totally out of their control and they're really being kept on the ship for the most part against their will. And then as Telika starts to spend more time with Griffin, see how far they're willing to go, especially to save Telika's people, to see how much more effective Griffin's methods are in this universe, and really kind of willingly stay on the ship and be a part of Griffin's crew. I wanted to show, you know, Telika uh, starts gendering Griffin correctly. Um, mm -hmm. After that, really as another, kind of another way to show Telika's acceptance of Griffin, and really just a more subtle way of showing their relationship evolve. Totally. And there's like a twist, right? Where someone's identity is like, well, obviously Griffin's is like, ooh, oh, mm, <laughs> not quite what we thought. But <laughs> it turns out that doesn't change the non-binariness. You know, like there's this mm -hmm. really nice way that that gets to be a part of who Griffin is. And I also noticed, Ben, and tell me if I'm getting the name right, Seti Stella? Yes. Seti Stella yep. is gender fluid. Yeah, I thought that would just be, you know, having... Um, you know, I kind of looked at various species and, you know, and different, like, animals. Just because there's so much weirdness and out-of-control animal qualities, like, in stuff on Earth, that's, like, 
that sounds so completely alien and sci-fi mm-hmm. oh, yeah. that's too good not to apply. So like animals, especially aquatic animals and vertebrates, we do see like shifting genders throughout their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I was giving Steady Stella this little tiny Abe Sapien aquatic elements and to go with kind of just the gender themes of Griffin, all right, with Griffin being non-binary. I thought that could be a fun way of kind of taking from real life, giving a little more flavor and, and, and like world building to Seti Stella and his species and his people. And also just another way of flipping the idea of gender and getting the reader to think about gender differently and another thing to just go with all those themes and everything else regarding gender going on in Griffin. And it's super important that the person who gets that information from Seti Stella is Griffin. Because I think it shows this way that even even if you are non-binary, you, you live in a society that's binary, you're going to internalize that shit, and you might gender other people wrong. And I thought that was such a nice moment of, like, again, Griffin's just a, a human, a non-binary human, but a human and thus flawed. And I, I just, I thought there were so many layers there and, and it ends up being like a really, they have like a really cute relationship, which I really like in general. They are fun. I do love writing Steady Stella. There's so much bickering and arguments between Griffin, Dow, and Telika, and yet all three of them look at uh, Steady Stella and go like, that baby, protect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Griffin. Um, are there any characters in comics that you had canon as being non-binary that aren't referred to as being non-binary on the page? I there's a few X-Men that I've uh, kind of had canon as non-binary. <laughs> Definitely Ilyana. Cyclops, I always thought had a feminine side that I would love to see Scott Summers get in touch with. Like, oh, it'd be it so yeah. good for him, like, to just work that out. <laughs> Scott Summers in a floral button down. I just feel like there's this whole side of femininity just waiting for like Scott Summers to explore. Mm-hmm. You can shop from anywhere, doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that you're 100% right. I feel like when we look at a character like Scott, he's kind of... Yeah, never gets to live his full life, I guess, is the kind of one of the biggest things you see with him. Even now, like, yeah. even all this time later, it's. I feel like he does this thing where he goes, I'm fitting into what people expect from me, and therefore I'm happy. And I think that that obviously leaves a lot of space I'm, for... I'm growth. loving Hickman's interpretation of him as mm-hmm. number one boyfriend dad. Oh, yeah. It does feel like he's like, okay, time to put on that, like performance that like family man performance sarah you said this and when you were talking about cyclops this is what i was thinking about is we were talking about like the original queer characters in comics we were talking about vampirella and you said it's amazing when a character like vampirella comes out and gets to be like her full pansexual self because it feels like this block that has existed for the character is suddenly gone and i kind of like i was like oh my god with scott that would totally it would make all this shit that to me is always like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> what? Who? It would what? make more sense, yeah. right? Suddenly like, you'd be like, oh, you've got issues for a reason that you're at least facing. And like, yeah. I might not just hate Let's you. Let's see, big giant <laughs> facial accessories to like hide as much of your face as you can. Obsessive work, <laughs> yeah. obsessively exercising in order to keep a particularly androgynous physical shape. Yeah, I know that move. What up, Scott? <laughs> yeah. What's up, Scott? I, and- I see you. <laughs> Listen, I'm still living in the universe where they're all like in a kitchen table polycule, you know, mm-hmm. and with with Wolverine. I'm like, that's yes. I mean, at this point, this is that like that's canon. That's pretty much what's <laughs> on the page at this point. Yeah. I know. I, I, was, I don't like, even know at how the much- map. I, I was looking at the map of like their houses yeah. and like, oh, oh, look at that door oh, where that door leads. Oh, you see those leads. adjoining doors. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. That was on That's purpose. You know door. that was a thousand percent on purpose. Oh, yeah. He's like, hey, little babies, <laughs> I got a little sprinkling for you. Like, Rachel would never come out, but like, this is happening. I feel like at this point, once Rachel sees this, is like, I'm not coming out out of like spite now. I know. God, it just drives you up the wall. She's like, you know what? I guess I'm just going to keep dating my friends. You know what? <laughs> you know what? Maybe the whole bad future where I was a psych hunter, maybe not so bad. Maybe not so <laughs> Maybe it's better than seeing this, than, see, than being on, like, the Krakoan version of, like, the House Hunters Thrupple episode. Oh, my God. Exactly. So here's my thing. This is her dad. Like, you yeah. would not want to be in the same house. I mean, I would be moving out immediately. Hopefully that's what happens in X Factor because I'd be like... Check, please. I do not want to be hanging out with Uncle Alex and Lorna, and I don't want to be hanging out with this excellent... I mean, it's not even a thruple anymore because it's totally Emma, Wolverine, like, Jean, Scott, like, uh. a lot of people involved in that. And Rachel's just like, yeah, my sometimes girlfriend subtextually is also now yeah. currently dead. <laughs> so, like... But also, uh, nobody needs that many I parents. Have... Nobody wants that many parents hanging around. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, no. I feel like as I've grown up, like, I've gone from just being like, oh, wow, Wolverine, he's got the claws, and he's the angry one, and he's the badass. And now I'm much, and now I look at K-Pride, and I'm like, yeah, queer Jewish femme, like, who alternates between, like, a pathological need to please her friends and an unrestrained desire to just be a shit show. 
Yes. Like I, yes, yes. Yeah, I've never related harder. Yes. And it, it just increases over time. I feel like there's been times where people just, I mean, what was it, X-Men Gold or whatever? That was like where the wedding issue happened and all that. Like mm-hmm. the whole time she was just, I'm here to do badass things. I'm a strong female protagonist, you know, <laughs> or whatever. And it's like the whole time she reads super wooden and then it makes it to the wedding issue and she phases through that ring. And I was just like, oh, like everything. And especially the fact that Gambit and Rogue are both like, let's not let a wedding go to waste. Okay. Gambit, Gambit taking one fucking look at that and being like, catering's already paid for. <laughs> I loved the Mr. and Mrs. X uh, title. It was so good. Gambit and Rogue are definitely one of my favorite couples because I feel like they're the most human. Like, I feel like I can just imagine them like on date night and just all their regular fights and everything. Especially with Kelly Thompson coming onto the title. Uh. Like Once she wrote it, that was when they clicked for me because I grew up in the 90s, of course, and I was reading all the like... I can't touch you, Remy. Like all those. Oh like, yeah, that for years and years and years and years. And then he was such. An I love ass. people doing the accent. <laughs> it's I so mean, it's, funny. It's not. It's not even a real Cajun accent. It's just a Gambit accent. No, and I'm no, from no, no. the actual Gambit, South, yeah. and yeah. so going like I can't is <laughs> like the funniest thing to me because none of us talk like that. But like, oh. yeah, I definitely grew up like watching their terrible, terrible love story for years. And then once it got to the Kelly Thompson era, I was like you know what? I really like them. And I think that they have the healthiest relationship I have ever seen. It's <laughs> great. bonkers. My favorite moment in all of the X-Men animated series is a Gambit moment because it's yes. when like him, Jubilee, and Storm are going to Genosa to like investigate if it's really <laughs> pro-mutant. And they're at the airport. Like Storm, nice like sundress, totally looks like a normal person. Jubilee, <laughs> dressed for the mall. Totally normal. Gambit, <laughs> At JFK in fucking full-on pink ab armor, head sock, <laughs> trying to get his fucking bow staff through the security. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's talk about Lucifer. Oh, my Why God, did, yes. Okay. Why did you start watching Lucifer? So what happened was I had been watching Prodigal Son. And then okay. Prodigal Son went on mid-season break. And I'm like, no, I need my fill of just like weekly murder mystery. Like, okay, ooh, four seasons of Lucifer. And also Lucifer had just showed up in Crisis on Infinite Earths. So I'm like, hey, it's now technically part of the Arrowverse. I've made some (laughs) weird, bizarre deal with the devil that I've agreed to keep up with the entirety of the Arrowverse from the beginning. Wow. (laughs) It's practically a part-time job, but I kind of love it so much. (laughs) Sarah and I were just texting about which ones we keep up on. Like, I'm Mm. falling behind on Batwoman. I always keep up on Legends. It's uh, it's all about Legends. It's all about Legends. Legends is really good, and I like Black Lightning. Black Black Lightning Lightning is is really good. good. I feel like Black Lightning is and Legends the most consistently high quality. Yes, Uh, every episode of Black Lightning is another round in America's favorite game show. How can we traumatize Khalil? Uh, (laughs) Oh my god! Poor painkiller. Poor Khalil. Poor painkiller. And Legends, I really appreciate Legends because it's just even among all the comic book television out there. There's nothing like Legends. Like, there's no other True. show where week in, week out, I'm like, I have no idea what entire genre you'll be. <laughs> yeah, the first That's episode true. of the season was like a reality mockumentary. Mockumentary, Les Mis. Hilarious. We've got Les Mis. 
80s teen slasher movie and 80s John Woo Hong Kong action film. Like this season alone. And next episode is fucking Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The world is not a cold, dead place because we have Legends of Tomorrow. And also, Legends and Black Lightning, two shows that very much embrace the queerness of superheroes. I was going to say, I think that Black Lightning's queerness is brilliant. I love the way that they do it, and it's the same with Legends. I think that they've been so good at just being kind of like... Yeah, this is certainly something that's happening. And then every now and again, you know, it's like they don't so much over focus on it in some ways where, you know, we see these kind of it's hard to describe, I guess, but you both will definitely know what I'm talking about. But when we see queer shows, we so often see morality tells where it's Mm -hmm. like they're just the same as everybody else. And then in Legends, it's like, all, nope. here's Sarah Lance. Yep. She's a shit show. Now here's Constantine. He is a shit show. Here's John Constantine. Show. Here, uh, here's John Constantine, a guy who broke time because he couldn't figure out how to deal with his boyfriend. <laughs> and really, between Constantine and Sarah Lance, this is like a mainstream broadcast network show where essentially the two leads are both bisexual. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. And Ava just moved in with Sarah. Oh, That's amazing. I am loving the entire unemployed burnout crashing on her girlfriend's couch like vibe they've been giving Ava this season. And she was like killing it and she was singing that song and you were just like, oh, mm, I'm feeling it. And then they cut to what was really happening and she's just like drunken off key. I was like, I've never loved Ava more. <laughs> yeah. And, that's really, like, they and I've let, never loved Sarah more they than let, watching Sarah uh, love Ava. They let I their like, queer characters oh! be queer. You know what? Go back to Lucifer. Like, I really love Lucifer. I love that they've always been completely upfront about the fact that like Lucifer is pansexual. He he mm-hmm. has a moment. Um, but at the same time, like, again, I know it's mostly all about one thing, but like, even so, the show has still shown us far, far, far more uh, women than men. And it does sometimes feel like, you know, falls not like, but not too by trope. Even though, if you ask me, the episode of him and Tom Willing in the suburbs is the single best episode in the entire series. <laughs> also, um, hello, even Mazakeen. That's bias fuck. That's bias fuck. It's such a bonkers thing, too, because that, I mean, I read the comics, you know, and uh, I just just never expected. So I I love it when there's queerness where I'm like, I should have shipped this already, (laughs) but I didn't. It never crossed my mind. And then they're like, guess what? Here's a ship for you. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I was looking for another ship. Thank you very much. I'll put that on my ship list. (laughs) Early on with Lucifer, I realized I'm like, do you really think you can make every episode seem poignant by having Tom Ellis play piano and sing? Because you're right. You yeah, are right. It turns out <laughs> More that works of for this. me. Yep. Every season opens with like almost the same thing, and I'm like, yes. It's I please. It's I kind of crazy enough. just how charismatic Tom Ellis is. Like I'm almost uh, scared of just how charming he is as Lucifer. Yeah, and it would be unrealistic to suggest such a charming, sexy ass motherfucker isn't pansexual. And so I know that it's like giving him kudos for hitting the bare minimum, but Jesus, we live in a world where that has not happened in most days. And so I say, (laughs) thank you, people who created this show. You did right by me. They did. I mean, it's... (laughs) So, you know, since we're getting season six, is it too much to ask for another Matt Ryan guest star? Maybe? Oh, oh yes. that's all I want. 
You know, I just, I mean, I think during this conversation, I never quite realized how great the CW is at queer representation because I was also thinking about Riverdale and the Choney ship. So, like, what? It's such and a Jessica I Drew, a they, they made, yeah. or not Jessica Drew, Nancy Drew, they made Nancy Drew's character Bess. She's a lesbian in Nancy Drew. Like, CW is like yeah. here for it. And I, I think you got to give a lot of credit to uh, Greg Berlanti, especially, you know, spearheading mm-hmm. Batwoman, sure. uh, you know, with all those superhero shows. I mean, it is really, like we got, uh, hell, like, I think they're teasing that, like, a Thunder and Grace Choi wedding in Black Lightning. Oh, my God. One I've of never my favorite needed anything. of all of the time. Mm-hmm. Never needed anything more. <laughs> Yay. All right. Well, we passed an hour, so I think that we can go ahead and wrap up. But is there anything else you wanted to add? Just keep an eye out on Comixology. Uh, the final issue of Griffin will be coming out at the end of this March. It should be a real good time. Uh, the first 11 issues are all up on Comixology. Every issue is just a dollar. And follow me on Twitter at, at BenTheCon. Yay! Ben, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a goddamn blast. I'm going to go watch some Lucifer. Hell yeah! <laughs> Woo! If you like bitches on comics... Rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. We really need rates, and we really need reviews. We need your rates, we need your reviews, we need your rates and reviews. You don't have to say you love us, just rate and review. (laughs) If you don't say you love us, I will be devastated. I'm not going to lie. If you are into episode 28 or further, and you're like, I'm hate listening... (laughs) You can keep your little hateful thoughts to yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's actually, yeah, in that case, please don't. But (laughs) if you uh, don't hate listen to us, maybe let us know in the comments. (laughs) If you're like a like to love ratio, then come on, come on over, rate and review, because we like and love you too. And we need more listeners. Not that you aren't enough, but we just need more. Hello, we have a correction corner and it's called I Made a Mistake. Last episode, <laughs> we were talking about Teeny Howard's Marauders. Now, eagle-eared listeners will know that that comic doesn't exist because Marauders is by Jerry Dugan. Now, it is really good, so I want to say that everything I said still stands. Teeny <laughs> Howard wrote Excalibur and is writing Excalibur and is turning out a really great run on Excalibur. So obviously I was talking about Excalibur, which does not have Kate Pride in it. This is a completely different comic book. I don't know what was going on that day. I'm pretty sure we drank tea that was made of weed. Um, tea weed. Maybe that has something to do with it and or... You could just be like a human who read I'm, like some Maybe comics. I'm just a human out here living in the world, you know, and it's... <laughs> Not always easy to be Sarah Century, I'll tell you that much. But I was wrong. But hey, go read Marauders <laughs> and go read Excalibur, the comic I was actually supposed to be talking about. We're a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. 
They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T C H E S O N C O M I C S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.